in a crude laboratory in the basement of his home. Welcome to the Tech Today podcast, powered by CEO Raider. It's your host, John Maeda. Haven't been with you all in a while. Had some traveling early in the week, picked up a flu bug on the trip. So I've been out of commission here for a couple of days, and I wanted to get one out while I have a little bit of energy here. So went down to Kissimmee, Florida, to participate on a panel at the SS&C Deliver Conference. The panel, the, the subject matter was, was deploying artificial intelligence within investment operations. The audience primarily consisted of middle office and back office investment professionals. And, and my sort of takeaway was uh, there's, there's a lot of opportunity for autom- to deliver automation to investment operations through the application of broadly defined artificial intelligence, which would include machine learning, deep learning, NLP. And so if, if you are a company that has access to lots of data, which SSNC does, um, a lot of the investment banks do, the bulge bracket firms that have uh, reams and reams of, of data typically related to to companies, to capital markets, so financial data, capital markets data. There's a real opportunity for natural language processing. I think we've known about machine learning for some time. Uh, investment management front offices have used machine learning to identify patterns in data. And you know, so this is a, you know, in alpha generating exercises. NLP is neat because you can capture key text uh, through a combination of NLP and OCR and capture relevant text from documents, capture relevant text from documents and pre-populate systems as an example. So you can eliminate the manual data entry component of King and data, which is done frankly in the front office and back office. Any Any of you that have built models know what I'm talking about. So I'm bullish on long-term opportunities to leverage NLP to drive value by automating manual processes. And we did this with a at, at CEO Rader with a, an old uh, product that we sold into PNC Insurance uh, where we used NLP to identify keywords and phrases on social media. Uh, so there have been a number of use cases that have been out there for some time, but I just feel like you're starting to see the democratization of these technologies, and now you're going to start to see the output of deploying those technologies into operations. You're going to start to see the output in the forms of enhanced operating efficiency. Um, Scott... Curlin from SSNC, who was on this panel that I participated on, there were three of us, he had mentioned that they're seeing uh, a lift in operating efficiency of 30 to 40%. So that's pretty meaningful. So that's my quick takeaway on AI and SSNC. And while we were gone, there was more drama with WeWork, so let's just put a, a bow on WeWork. 99.9% hype. And as we said before, just a terrible business model of absorbing long-term commercial leases and subletting short-term. I don't care what the valuation is. That business model is always going to stink. Just doesn't make sense. So from WeWork's S1 filing, year-ended 
December 31, 2018 revenue, $1.8 billion. Net loss, $1.6 billion. Implied valuation, $47 billion. Can you imagine? That's how out of control this thing got. $47 billion for a company that generated only $1.8 billion of revs. Talk about hype, as is so often the case of companies coming out of Silicon Valley. And it's been this way since I started traveling to Silicon Valley for business back in 2003. It's been this way since before then. And if you think back to the bubble of 99, 2000, and, you know, I left the, the space, the banking space in 2011, and it's only gotten worse, the, these private company valuations. I mean, when you think about some of the companies that have come out or tried to come out this year and their valuations, Uber, Lyft, WeWork's not coming out. Um, and there have been some good companies, but so let's just look at WeWork for a moment, shall we? $47 billion implied valuation. They go on a, a road show. Feedback is obviously poor. They get a lot of pushback on valuation. So they say, well, maybe we'd be willing to cut it to as much as, uh, you know, cut the valuation down to 20 to $25 billion, if that is, is what it takes to get the deal done. And that's right around the time we hit the road. And then shortly thereafter, WeWork leaked. They were willing to take the deal value down to 10 down to $10 billion to get the deal done. It's a little more than five times the revenue, which I would still argue is too high. But look how quickly we work caved because the investors know, and this includes CEO Adam Newman, they know that if there's a slight downturn, this thing's going to zero, and they want to get out. And that's not my opinion that they want to go out. Look, look at the, the insider holdings pre-IPO and post-IPO on the S1 filing. Post-IPO, all the insiders are going, taking their holdings down to zero. So that tells you everything you need to know. But to cave so quickly in valuation, the fact that Newman sold was a $770 million, a billion-ish prior to the IPO, just, it's just such an awful look when you're trying to sell your stock to the public, to institutional investors. I mean, this thing had red flags all over it. So it's a short-term victory for investors. I hope this thing never gets out. Uh, and that no funds, no pension funds, no any funds ever spend a dollar. I mean, you can't even call it investing in this business. I would call it, it's, it's pure spend, it's pure waste if you allocate a dollar of capital to WeWork. And then to pass the time on my flights down and up, I was reading uh, Harry Macopoulos's book entitled No One Would Listen. This is Macopolis is the whistleblower on Madoff. And, you know, being in the industry, I, I followed the account, you know, at, at a high level. I'd never taken the time to, to, to read the book. What Markopoulos went through in submitting detailed material to the SEC to incriminate Madoff I think there were five separate submissions over a period of approximately 10 years and they just continue to turn a blind eye to to Madoff and there are reasons for that but it's just disgusting when you read it detailed work um, we did a little bit of work of our own as you may be aware here on the podcast and, and we published it at Tech Today uh, after Macropolis 
accused GE of, of being a fraud. And we went through all the statutory find, uh, filings for Prudential, which was used as, as a comp to GE's long-term care policies. I won't rehash everything. But this real risk there, and it's funny how uh, GE's stock has recovered in the past few weeks as if there isn't much risk. And I think if we, a recession hit tomorrow, GE goes bankrupt. Um, if a recession does not hit, it's still unclear as to what happens to GE operationally. I 100% believe that GE is extremely aggressive with accounting. And that's always been the case since I started out in the finance industry back in the mid-1990s. And just some number of years ago, they, they were fined for criminal accounting or fraudulent accounting. And I should find that and put it in the show notes. I know I, I, I tweeted it, and my comment on the tweet was, how does GE get hit with this fine for this charge by the SEC and Jeff Emald gets to, to keep his job? I tweeted that maybe about six weeks ago. And I'll, I'll dig up that link and I'll put it in show notes so you can see exactly what I'm talking about. But these guys have been guilty of aggressive accounting forever. So I 100% believe that charge. And then we have people on the street that say about GE, well, they can continue to sell assets should they need to generate cash to, to raise reserve capital for the long-term care policies. Or for whatever reason, they can sell assets to generate cash. What the heck are you going to be left with if you... So they talk about spinning the healthcare business, okay? So what's the stub position of GE going to look like? Long-term care policies, a power business. Do you want to own that asset? Do you want to own a skinny version of GE? And a skinny version of GE, I can tell you, is going to be a whole lot less valuable than where the market cap is today. So I just don't know how, how investors allow themselves to get whooped up in a frenzy about how uh, GE is on a fast track to recovery as if there's, there's no risk. I just don't understand it. Well, I do understand it because I know a lot of, uh, <clears throat> of buy-siders just don't do the work. Either they're, they're lazy or they don't have the, 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 the time, which I know is a real issue. They're stretched thin across, you know, 70-some-odd companies or both. So if, if GE is a big position in your, in your portfolio and you're a portfolio manager, I'd spend a lot of time on it. And frankly, I don't think you can find the answer in their financials because the, the financials, trying to read GE's financials with little detail that they give you and the way they present it, it's, you know, clearly they don't, clearly transparency is not a, a priority for the firm. That's all for now. See you next time.